0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Rock and Roll Shinsu Chu. This is episode number 87. My name is Gabe Estel. I'm here with my co-hosts, Dennis Levi-Leach and Jonathan Getz. How's it going, guys? Not bad. Good, good. Good to see you um, on on this winter night. So tonight, we um, got a very special guest. We're going to talk about him a little bit later. Uh, I think even if you don't know his name, you certainly know, uh, I think our listeners will know a lot of the albums he's worked on, uh, including, I think, some of the best records of the last 10 years or so. So we're really excited to talk about um, our guest, um, uh, Colin Dupuy. Before we get into that, though, uh, I want to go ahead and something, talk a little bit about baseball. As you guys know, uh, we could call it... Uh, the cold stove as opposed to the hot stove cuz not really a lot has gone on you see that? I, I just came up with that right there um not, not a lot has really gone on um at least at least over the last probably month or so uh after some some activity at the beginning of the off season um but recently uh i believe it was Cubs convention this weekend here in Chicago and uh Cubs owner Tom Ricketts uh, said that franchise career home r- run leader, uh, the um, the sort of blacklisted Sammy Sosa, needs to put everything on the table. In that's his in, that's Ricketts' quote in regard to his PED use. If he ever wants to be welcomed back by the Chicago Cubs, uh, Cubs fans know that Sammy Sosa really hasn't really been around much uh, since he left Chicago, um, and that kind of. You know, there's there's probably some as we were discussing earlier t- uh, before we, we went on the air, a little bit of hypocrisy there with uh, some of the other personnel moves the Cub has had made, including in uh, you know bringing in our oldest Chapman, um, uh, you know Manny Ramirez, you know folks with uh, whether it be PED use or or uh, domestic violence, you know sort of off the field behavior. Uh, Those folks have been brought in in recent years. Um, So some fans would argue that it might be time for the Cubs to welcome Sammy back. Now, we have a big Cubs fan among us. So I'm going to have Levi start off. um, Kind of uh, first question, Levi, should the Cubs, uh, in whatever capacity, I don't know if it's throwing out a pitch or being a team ambassador or whatever, should they welcome back Sammy Sosa?
1: Um. You know, it's a tough call. Um I I a lot of me agrees with Rickett's statement. You know what I mean? I would just like him to be honest. You sure. know? Um I, I don't think the issue so much is anymore with the drug use, it's with the line that all the players were doing. Whether it was Sosa or Maguire or Palmero or yeah, you know what I mean? The, fam-
0: was... the famous finger point
2: from Palmero right, at right? the uh... <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, and you know what I mean, the thing that a lot of those guys stand on is like sosa like Sosa never had a dirty test, not one. Mm. but this was in the age of when there was like they were on like early versions of like the clear and other types of substances that that weren't even being tested for or being sure.
3: detected. Mm-hmm. yeah
1: and so and that has all come to light now as fact. So it's like, well, I just, I do agree that there should be some, some, some vetting on his part of of his, his sins, if you want to say it. Um, But I, I, I think a lot of people our age and people of older generations are always going to be hard on, on PED users. Sure. Just because, you know, we feel that it taints the game so heavily and it does.
0: Yeah.
1: Whereas I think there's eventually going to be a younger generation that's going to never have even seen Jose Canseco or Mark McGuire or Sammy Sosa have even played.
3: Right. So
1: they're not going to have those associations with those sure. players. Yeah. They're just going to know, oh, that guy hit a ton of home runs or that yeah. guy stole a ton of bases or that guy, you know.
0: Yeah, they grew up in an era of more s- stringent testing, you know. so it's Yeah, just, so yeah.
1: I, I think eventually the the – I think the darkness and shadows that surround a lot of those players are eventually not going to be seen by younger fans. Yeah. To whereas I think our generation will always be, will be the old guys in the barber shop, you know, in 20 years still complaining about it.
0: It would, uh, yeah, good points. So, I mean, with everything that's happened and as much as the reputations of those players has been tarnished, it would be awkward to see them up in Cooperstown now, you know, like how would people react? Oh if, yeah. Yeah. If Maguire and Sosa and bonds, you know, got in, um, just to like, I mean, would they address it during their speeches? You know, like I doubt it. I, I don't know. It's just, right. it, uh, it would, it would, I, I think at this point, I don't think you can let those, let those guys in, um, for for that reason, you know, I, I that might sound weak and maybe I'm not articulating it well, but I, so much has transpired and so much has been written about it and and their their reputations have been so soiled that I don't even know if it's worth bothering now. You know, I mean, I I think they just I think you just leave them out for the sake of it's uh, just too much uncertainty around it, you know. I
2: um where do you yeah, draw the line, ahead. though, with I don't know. Uh, some some players who were around it? Maybe they got a little bit bigger. Maybe they, you know, they eventually made it to three thousand hits. You know, a threshold that would otherwise get them in. They would hit five hundred home runs. Yeah, and and they were never uh, as a, accused as as guys like Bonds and Sosa were, but they were still of the ilk and and maybe there was a chance. Um, yeah, you know, the, the and and so where somebody do you draw like the line? maybe like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't I don't want to like. Like, are you talking
0: people that like got popped or people that didn't?
2: People that didn't. Um, oh, okay. And... Yeah, I don't,
0: I don't know who. The, yeah, I don't know who those people are. And and actually, and, um... you know,
2: there a lot of these players. Uh, Bonds never got popped. Bonds never served a suspension. All right. All right. Um, uh, did Sosa? Did Sosa actually get popped? I don't uh, think I so. said no. So yeah, uh, th- there's, I, as look, far as I like, know,
1: he never tested.
2: We know right. that, or we don't know, We, but we have great suspicion about, about these players and that's undoubted. Uh, but well, and I we think don't a lot know of that for is, sure. And, yeah. and, and that's easy to say for, you know, to be the gatekeeper for a guy as obvious as, as McGuire, who did later admit to it, but, Let's say that you know there is a guy that you're kind of unsure about, and sure that i I have a few guys that that I would say that about, but I'm not gonna do them a disservice by speaking them their names out loud, yeah and, yeah, we don't and, know yeah yeah and 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 so who's you know who are we to say uh for sure that uh uh that that they would be blacklisted uh as a result and 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 I and I think that you know you can leave that up to later not not to leave it up to later generations but put them in there and you know if news later comes out if they admit it on their deathbed then include that in their in their Hall of Fame plaque uh, as an addendum. Yeah. Also, I, I, and
0: I, perhaps there's literature out there, and perhaps you know there's been scientific studies. I assume there has. Um, I don't know. How much I, I, I'm curious how much of a difference it made for people, you know, how much of the the roids like well, Canseco claims it made a huge difference for him. Um, I don't know if he was just that was just him trying to sell more books or or what.
1: Yeah, it comes back almost to the I think Dion Sanders said, if you look if you you know what I mean, if if you look good, you feel good. If you feel good, you play good. If you play good, they pay good. So,
2: sure. yeah, right on.
1: <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think they, you know, they might have helped physically, but the, they help more, I think, mentally with a lot of those athletes. Whereas, you know, almost not, not a placebo effect because they were getting bigger. Sure. But I think sure. just the power of knowing that A, you were on something that is enhancing you. Gives yeah. you more confidence and more power in your head. You know what I mean. Well oh, that would like, be a
2: great story if, like, a trainer, you know, told a player that, "Hey, I'm, I'm giving you some juice," but it was just a placebo. Yeah. And, and he <laughs> there's a good scientific <laughs> yeah. study. You know, yeah, yes. right. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, and
0: uh, I mean, Bond said this. You know, when he was questioned on it, you know, the baseballs about hand-eye coordination. Um, I, I, I mean that. Uh, that has some weight, too, because, I mean, all of those – all the people that we just mentioned, I think it's it's not really debatable that they weren't gifted – they're gifted hitters.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, I, I think A-Rod, um, you know, uh, Bonds, Maguire, you know, maybe maybe not Canseco, I don't know. Um, all those guys would have had, you know, probably Hall of Fame careers. Oh,
1: yeah. I, we, you know, I think – not Bond,
2: Maguire. Yeah. Maguire was going down M- before.
1: Maguire was – kind of having a regress season but yeah
2: I'd have to look at his numbers like
0: entirely in Oakland before Um, St. Louis I don't know
1: we talked about this one time before and and I liken Bonds to Nixon in the fact that it was like Bonds Probably would have been in the Hall of Fame without yeah. it. You know what I mean? Nixon yeah. probably would have won that election without. Oh, Watergate. not Otis
2: Nixon. Sorry. <laughs> oh, okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I had you on the edge of your seat there. Yeah. No, yeah. well, I mean, no, you. I mean, Bonds
0: knows how to hit a baseball better than a lot yeah. of people do. You sure. know, I mean, regardless I of the rules, I, I, I'd say the same thing about even though as uh, un, yeah. unpopular as it is, I'd say the same thing about A Rod as well. I mean, yeah. You know, with, I, yeah. With um, Bonds
2: and Arod, it was more about ego because they obviously already had the talent. They could lead the lead the league in home runs, and then Bond sees what you know uh, Maguire and Sosa did, and and he says, "You want to see you know what I can do? You know, screw seventy. I'll, I'll I could probably take you up to eighty. The dude would have hit eighty five home runs if he wasn't walked so much that year. Yeah, um, sure. But what do you guys think about to bring this back to Sosa, um, the Andy Pettit approach, which is if you if he just owned it right away. Said, yeah, um, I did it. A lot of people were doing it. Even pitchers were doing it, so I had to like keep up with pitchers. Would where would his character be considered, and 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 would he be, you know, at at the Cubs spring training or or whatever it is the the Cubs camp in the middle of the winter um, as a as a team uh, uh, representative?
0: Hmm. I, I think it would be. I, I think he would be brought back if he if he admitted. Well, I mean, regardless of what Ricketts said. Um. Yeah, I th- I, most of the people that admitted it, um, maybe it tarnished them in the short term. But like uh, another guy, um, you mentioned Pettit, and I totally forgotten about him until until you brought it up. Um, Giambi I, I, as well. I, Giambi yeah. admitted it, Definitely. you know. And I and he's I think I think he's a coach now, yeah. right? Isn't he, he was he?
2: considered for a head coaching job, a managerial position for the Rockies, but he didn't get it. Yeah, he's he's um, somewhere. mcguire has been he, a coach, McGuire.
0: Yeah, McGuire's had a uh, a, a Manning, a good yeah, good. You know, McGuire's uh, been a coach for what the Dodgers and mm-hmm.
2: uh, Cardinals as well. Yeah, so you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, um, I I just feel like if if Sosa had owned it as soon as he retired, yeah, then they would have welcomed him back eventually. And I think so. And you know, there still would have been. He would have been celebrated still for what he was able to accomplish. He made that team a lot of money those years that he oh, was hit Oh, God, 60. yeah. Because no, I mean, people they, only came for Sosa. Oh, that, they, that was yeah. it. Him and McGuire performed
0: CPR on baseball that year. Sure, you know, I mean. Sure. But that, those were some
2: shitty Cubs teams, though, right, Levi?
1: Pretty much,
2: yeah. Yeah, I mean, they weren't they for weren't the competing. Part, the
1: Cubs weren't <laughs> ultra competitive. They did they did all right a few of the years he was with us. But, yeah,
0: yeah. Oh, 03, mean, right? He was still yeah. on the oh three team, right? I mean, that yeah. would have been like the near the yeah. end. Um. But yeah.
1: Yeah. The, it was. It was the come see Sammy hit home run show for sure. Totally.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I he um, made that he made that organization tons of money. Yeah.
1: He made the Tribune a lot of money, and then they sold it to the Hates.
0: Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, Sam, Sam, Sammy, Sammy's got a subscription to the Tribune still. <laughs> Prince, Prince's not dead in Sammy's eyes. Right, right. All right.
1: They, they probably gave him a free free subscription for life. All right. money
0: he made. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. He might like. La- he might last longer in the Tribune the way the way the way Prince edited. But anyway, um, yeah, you know, interesting debate. I would say. Um, I, I agree with Jonathan. I mean, if, if, if I, I would have taken the short-term hit of uh, just saying, I, I did it. Um, and I think if he did that, he would he would be in the better graces of the Cubs, but he probably wouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. I think it's safe to say that Giambi, even though he admitted it, won't get in the Hall of Fame. Right. Uh, you know, um, whereas other guys who have denied it, Obviously, they're not getting in, at least at least under the sort of the current climate. Um, yeah.
2: So. Yeah. 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 I agree. And and it's it's interesting that the story like this is coming out now because this is very much going to be a, a story for the next 10 years. And and uh, uh, at the same time, we, we should be grateful that we haven't had to think of a lot of 70s and 80s players in the same light because they were cheating in other ways. Uh sure uh, with yeah. with greenies and amphetamines and all that and uh we don't have to think of them like that cuz that's never going to come out uh or it, it, it did come out and it's just accepted as it oh sure. it was just part of the culture you know those crazy seventies right. right you know you're just lucky that they weren't doing blow on home plate
1: taking no hitters
2: yeah
0: yeah it it seems like yeah more you know by, byproducts of the era you know so to speak um you know, with the you know drugs in the seventies and eighties, um, you know recreational drugs, well, some right. some recreational drugs, yeah, um, yeah, yeah.
1: It's it'll be it, an interesting next decade as as it progresses for sure.
3: Certainly. Yeah, and, and certain. I think
2: it, it sounds like a lot of Hall of Fame voters, the younger Hall of Fame voters, are more accepting of of the juicers and just looking at the numbers and not considering the allegations. Uh, yeah, that's that's a good point. I I, I think that
0: it, there is a generational gap in in how folks view it. Um, you know, baseball is still and that's this is arguable, even though it's my favorite sport, you know, is seen as America's pastime. Um, and so I think a lot of people like if you watch um, some of that footage, you know, when those those guys were uh, had to testify before the Senate, there was a lot of like senators grandstanding, you know, mm-hmm. like, oh, you know, you've you know, you're corrupting our game, you know, and um yeah you know there was a lot of finger wagging and a lot of people t- you know a lot of a lot of politicians taking the moral high ground um which uh i all i find maybe not as bad as taking steroids but at least you know sort of you know uh, you know equal somewhat equally <laughs> off-putting yes <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah so so yeah that always kind of bothered me during that you know was um i i, I don't know um this whole notion of the integrity of the game. Uh, eh, yeah. The game's always
1: been kind of dirty. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I, I mean, mean, it's not f- I, like, if you're, if you're looking for perfection. Yeah. Or, if uh, you're,
0: if you're looking, yeah, if you're looking for,
1: you know,
2: uh, these aren't choir boys.
0: Yeah. Right. Right.
2: Never have been. Never have yeah. been. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, yeah,
0: I, uh, yeah you know we'll we'll see, we'll see how it shakes out i mean if the rickets sell the team um and sammy's still around i don't know maybe the next maybe the next owners will will welcome him back i mean he's he's been a, a, a pretty reclusive figure um and you know there's sort of some health conditions as well like his skin has i mean like i uh, um as well so like there's there's kind of sort of ambiguities surrounding Sammy beyond mm-hmm. baseball as well. Mm-hmm. So that, that might, that might factor into how people accept him.
2: Yeah. yeah, oh, yeah I agree. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So- Cause McGuire on the other hand is this kind of like, Oh shucks, you know, I really feel bad about this and, yeah. and I got to tell my son about it. And I cried about telling my son S- Sosa is, uh, it seems like is, is much more awkward and doesn't have the benefit of, of being as an identifiable guy. Um, right, because right. you know, because he doesn't speak the language that well, and and yeah, sure. and so it's harder for him to win over Americans in general.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's a that's a really valid point. Um, so, Sammy, if you're out there, hey, he can come on. <laughs> we'll we'll, we, we'll can talk about. We'll it. have you on the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. seriously. Yeah. If you want to, if you want to go to a lesser known media outlet, we're uh, we're here for you. <laughs> um, so, uh, but anyway. So uh, good conversation. We'll see how it shakes out. Um, but want to go ahead and get into uh, the sort of the heart of the order tonight with a very special interview we've got. Our guest today is Colin Dupuy, a two-time Grammy-winning mixer, producer, and engineer based out of Nashville and Detroit. We track Colin down because of his recent work on one of our favorite albums of 2017. That's Marty Stewart's Way Out West. Well, with just over 15 years in the industry, Colin's resume is already an impressive roster of artists. It includes Dr. John, The Black Keys, St. Vincent, Lana Del Rey, and Angel Olsen, as well as some of our personal favorites like Grant Lee Phillips, Brownout, and Bombino. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome
2: Colin Dupuy. So, Colin, thank you so much for joining us. Um, now,
4: first yeah, no of all... No problem, no problem.
2: Yeah, it's... Uh, inf- well, where, where are you uh, right now? Are you in... Um...
4: Uh, I'm actually in Detroit, Michigan, right now. Detroit, um, doing some, some some work with some some artists that I've worked with, and I'm working with in Detroit. So yeah, it's awesome.
3: Really? That's kind of where
4: I'm from. Michigan originally. Yeah, that's kind of where I cut my teeth being an audio engineer the Detroit Detroit. So, right. Nashville.
2: Yeah, so um, uh, it's like Detroit, Nashville, and a bit of Akron still.
3: Uh, no, I have uh, the, the the Akron involvement is that
4: I like. Was working as uh, I've done all, all you name it in, in some recording studios. I've done it with like, wiring studios, fixing things, checking equipment, recording records. Um, kind of like you know, the very blue collar Midwestern kind of approach to stuff like, um, you know, be good at all the things that are involved in the job you do have a hard work ethic. And the Akron connection is from Dan Aldak of the Black Keys hiring to. Set up his, st- helping him get his studio wired up and running at his home studio. And what happened is he moved to Nashville and then called me on the phone and said, "Can you help me get my studio in Nashville going?" And I didn't know I was going to be moving. And then all of a sudden, I'm making records, and all of a sudden, I'm moving. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I bet that could be Basically whirlwind.
4: Yeah, it was very much whirlwind. I mean, it went, it went to like I helped him work on a little bit of that Jessica Lee Meefield record that he did at his house in uh, Akron. And, you know, I fixed him with the equipment for him, did, did all kinds of stuff like that. And then he called me one day on the phone and was like, hey, I'm buying, I bought a space in Nashville, a building. And so I went down and checked it out, and he hired a company that does that kind of stuff, to build studios, and they broke it out. And then we got to work, and, like, we made, like, the Black Keys record and quite a few other really good records, like, within that first year. And I like, kind of put it on the map. And he was already really getting on, was on the map because of the brother's record but um, you know it just it took everything that I was doing with him to a different level because we opened the studio up and I helped him open his studio up and we you know one after another record after record really great records you know
3: for sure which led to that Dr. John record that we that won a Grammy and blah 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 you know all that kind of stuff um, it was really a lot of fun really great Great, great, great studio. Really amazing uh, person to work for, too. He's a highly talented individual um, on, a, on every level you can think of. Um, songwriter, singer, uh, producer. Really, really, really amazing um, opportunity.
2: Yeah, and I was blown away when I saw that uh, that you would be producing, he would be producing uh, that that uh, latest Bombino record. I thought, oh wow, that's kind of out of nowhere. And Bombino being an artist that I appreciated, I thought, oh, this is a perfect pairing.
4: Yeah, yeah, exactly. That was how that I don't know how that got hooked up, but it was one of those kind of like
3: it happened, and like all of a sudden we're making this record with Bombino, and this whole band is there. In the studio, these Malian cats, and it just—it's it's like a, it was like one of the hottest summers of Nashville too, you know, in a while I guess. Record temperatures, it's like every day during that session, it was like a hundred and like five, you know, with eighty percent humidity.
2: <laughs> I, I'm sure that band could roll thinking, with
3: it. Oh yeah, they they were hanging around outside, smoking cigarettes, and uh, uh you know drinking hot tea that they cooked <laughs> over fire out in the back, on the grill in the back. Because it wasn't back, hot back enough. There. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. They literally, like, they have this tea, like, <laughs> it's this really strong uh, gunpowder tea they make, Chinese gunpowder, and they cook it in the water to really make it strong, and then they put a bunch of sugar in it, and then they drink shots of it like espresso, kind of Turkish coffee in a way. Wow. It's like a really strong... Uh, green tea, and they're like offering you some, and it's like 100 degrees out, and you're like, uh, yeah, I'll drink, some, I'll drink some hot tea. It's so weird. Like, and they're just like, oh,
4: this is nothing.
3: <laughs> so yeah, that was a whirlwind. That was a fun record. That record happened really fast too. Like, there's a the whole process of that record was, with, with like, I think we cracked it in five days or something like that. Like, oh, wow. It was a really fast process. Um, and mixed it in like two or three. Like, um, yeah, that was fun. A lot of fun. So you and they're amazing live. You're, oh yes! You ever seen them live? I I, I haven't yeah, had the pleasure. No. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Like it's it's really amazing. Actually, like Bobby set is like it's like a transcendental experience. Really. I I he once plays saw and plays and plays
4: and plays.
2: I, I I did see him as a backup clapper at a Tanaro show once, and that was cool. Okay.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like watching hendrix and like some other stuff like like this mommy and like 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 kind of like trance music like they just play and play and play like the songs are 15 or 20 minutes long and they go go and go and go and it's like just this high intensity thing just keeps building and building and building it's really amazing so i I would highly suggest it
4: Um,
2: absolutely yeah um, so it, it, to take a step back real quick, uh, regarding, you know, you're, you're an engineer, you're a mixer. So many casual music fans might not understand the contribution of a, of a recording engineer or a mixer. How do you explain to them what you do?
3: Uh, yeah. Um, well, you know, in the real basic terms, what an engineer does and what I do is that we facilitate the technical aspect of capturing musical performances. Um, uh, onto the intended equipment, whatever equipment that is, like if it's onto analog tape or onto a computer or some other kind of recording format, um, digital, multitrack, uh, or whatever, we are involved in the communicating the artistic direction that the artist is intending, what the producer is intending with their direction of the art. That's what a producer does, is directing and overseeing the creative process and is communicating to the engineer their desires and the artists are communicating their desires to the engineer. and The engineer is facilitating these, these desires onto the technical formats of recording. Um, and the same thing with mixing. We're hired to take these things that exist and to create a final um, stereo or multi-stem uh, like a surround format or whatever of of the recorded material and turn it into something that has an emotional impact that gets the art across to the listener. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's both sides. You have to be, um, creative, technically understand all the equipment, have that become kind of your, your instrument. And then you also have to have a creative, um, viewpoint to the process. Um, so it's not just technical because at least that's how I approach it. Like it's, um, you know, a bunch of it is just emotional management, managing the emotional content and making sure that that gets across to the listener. Because, wow. hey, I'm a musician and a fan of music. So I'm more than just a guy who learned how to be an audio engineer. Like, you know, first and foremost, I'm a musician and a fan of music. So uh, engineering is just an extension of that. Um, musical well, so- studies basically
1: so uh, w- when is your job fun and when is it a chore ever if it ever is
3: uh it can be a chore um mostly it's when the hours get past 12 hours a day that's yeah. when you just when you're kind of beating a dead horse like where and not always not every time this happens most of the time you hit 10th or 12th hour and just you know the energy of everyone is, is done you know yeah. and then you usually you're done by then Every now and then you get a situation where someone is trying to push through either because they only have so many days' book and they're trying to use. And usually it's people who aren't as experienced in making records are trying to do that. The first record, they're like, oh, we have a studio for 24 hours for a week. And so they want to try to work for 24 hours um, every day. <laughs> it's like they, they yeah. shortly learn, quickly learn that their, their, their creativity it's just like any 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 business, like you know, the people doing the work, the creativity, you know, it's a exponential scale downward, you know, from quality to, to crap. So, um, you know, but I've had some exceptions where you're on the 16th hour or 20th hour, and some amazing stuff happens. Um, but most kind of time, it doesn't. So that's the only chore part of it is the hours yeah. when you get people who want to do those kind of hours, who who don't understand. Efficiency in that really eight to ten hours to twelve hours is enough, Um, and they're not going to get anything better out of themselves, especially if they're singing.
2: Um, Sure, and and uh, one one of your uh, recent projects, uh, Marty Stewart's uh, Way Out West, was a a favorite of all of ours in twenty seventeen, and you were involved in uh, mixing a couple of those tracks. Um, How was that experience? Recording too? Recording those? Oh, you engineered those?
4: those.
3: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nice. Engineered. Yeah, I track those. Like, but great. I mean, those guys are those guys are, are pros. I mean, I you know those kind of records, like those kind of sessions, are easy because those guys are those professionals. Are, yeah, pros, pros, seasoned, really. yeah. seasoned yeah. pros. Yeah, we're talking someone who's been doing it longer than I've been alive. Right. right yeah. So it I was, was born in 1974. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like I've been. I was born in 1974. Marty Stewart was making records before I was born.
1: Right, yeah, so, I, you know. it's so funny. The other day, I came across in a in, in a store one of Marty's records from 1982, and it says he's 22 yep. years old, and he'd been on the road over a decade.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. He started. Yeah, he started. He started making records when he was 12 or 13. You know, so he started like probably right around when I was born, or right before that. So he's been he's been involved in music longer than I've been like thinking about music at least. You know, like yeah. So when going into a studio with guys like that and, and all of his band members are ridiculous musicians oh, yeah. ridiculous Absolutely. musicians, uh, and the producers themselves these guys all make records for other people also as producers and songwriters i mean nashville is completely uh it's like another level um and it really has brought my game up a lot working in that city because you're working with people who, who know what's going on they're not you know, green at all. These people, like everyone in that town knows what they're doing when they're doing something purposeful. So that session was easy. I just had to make sure it sounded good. You know, I just had to not get in the way of their musical process and not take forever to set anything up, you know, so mine. And that's what I think has made what I do always uh, fun for a lot of artists. Cause I, I work very, very quickly and I don't um, get too focused on technical, like, I'm not making a try to get a sound on some instrument for a half an hour, hour or whatever other kind of crazy thing that I hear people do. Like people walk in, they set up we make sure we can hear each other in the headphones and then we start recording. And that's it. This, which is about a half an hour setup time.
1: And know? that, that,
3: that,
1: it, that beckons back to an older fashioned way of recording, which I think, it, you know, is better a lot of the times. Would you agree yeah. with that?
3: I think I think that like the fifties and sixties, the engineers back then, because of the limited tech, limited technology they had to work with,
4: mm-hmm. they had
3: to be uh, very good, um, uh, you know, with understanding how their microphones relate to what they're capturing, you know, um, and and everything was final because back then they were recording to a single mono track machine right. or a, a stereo machine. There was no multi-track in the fifties 50s, 50s and early sixties. It wasn't until the mid sixties that multi-track even started to happen on a large scale. There may have been like Les Paul and some of the other guys who were tinkering, but there was no production machines available until like the mid-60s where studios could buy one from a company like Ampex, for instance. Yeah. So late 50s, early 60s engineers had to be able to capture a full band performance with lead vocal live and be done with it. And that got cut onto record. Like that that mix was cut. So you were mixing while tracking. You were done. Yep. Um so that mentality is uh kinda I try to approach it as much as possible given the given the context of the music I'm working on, obviously. Um every everyone is every record's different, but um and I, you know, not afraid of computers and I use them a lot. But I still approach it from that aspect like minimalism, less mics, more straightforward approach, mm-hmm. making sure that musicians feel that they can just perform and not concerned about like what I am doing and I'm not wasting their time, like, um, you know, trying to get a sound on something, you know? So yeah. are you
2: even able to casually listen to music or are you just always engineering and mixing in your head as you listen to music?
3: Uh, yeah, I can let go. I mean, I listen to music that I enjoy that I didn't work on and I can just listen to it. Of course we analyze, you analyze stuff like mostly cause you're trying to learn from it. You know, of course, you're like listening to something and going, man, listen to the sound of that like how do they record that like what microphone, but still, I can just listen to it and be blown away by it like you know a really great record that it, i think you know is a pinnacle of Sonic if you guys haven't aren't keen to this record to me, it's kind of like uh it's just a pinnacle of what sound- what records sounded like um at a certain point in time in history, and it, it's the um." Staple Singers, gospel group. Yeah. Um, it's their record. Hold on. I, mean, I have to think so off the top of my head. It's called Hammer and Nails. Nah. Yeah. Hammer and Nails. Okay. Good. Hammer and Nails by the Staple Singers. Uh, it's on iTunes. You can buy it on iTunes. You can get it places like that. Um, the way that record is recorded and the singing and the just, the just the sound of it and the singing and the emotion that's captured on it, is phenomenal. It is like it's like Elvis Presley's records were. It's like um, you know Johnny Cash's records were. Like yeah. those early records where it's like just the sound of it is so clear and perfect. And it's so well recorded. It's kind of scary. Um, it's 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 hard to, to And it was recorded like early '60s or something like that, right? Right. So yeah. it's like recorded live to a stereo tape machine probably a tube tape machine or if it was solid state either way it sounds amazing and it was recorded probably with like three or four microphones probably not a lot when you listen to it you're like it's just crazy how good it sounds um so that record to me is kind of like an example of what you should try to aim for when capturing organic music that's not electronic and programmed obviously there's a big difference between things we you know
1: uh, like, what would be some of your other favorite moments on records? Like, anything from a song
3: to a drum fill? Oh, yeah. I have, like, you know, Hendrix's Access Boldos Love, that record is full of stuff, you know, like, full of amazing sonic moments, and musical things. Uh, the drummer Mitch Mitchell, the way he played on that record. he played on all of Hendrix's records. His jazzy mm-hmm. approach to rock, like, um, of course, Led Zeppelin and all that stuff. Of course, um, you know, Johnny Cash's early stuff, The Sun Years. Sun Records stuff. That stuff is all just so amazing. Um, you know, Roy Albertson is actually probably one of the best. Also, like Roy's, um, you know, his 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 fifties, uh, late fifties, early sixties mono recordings sound like they're in stereo to me, even though they're totally mono. Like the depth in which there was, how they captured all that stuff in it was all mono. How it sounds so full and yeah. it's just like, amazing. Like.
1: Yeah, I agree. Um, his old his old stuff on Monument Records, yeah, uh, it was it was exactly. pretty. That's the stuff. It's, yeah, it's untouchable. It really is.
3: Yeah, that's a great. I mean, those are those are shining examples of like the pinnacle of audio technology for the time. Really, I'd say even up to now, like, we're still like we can listen back to that stuff. I'm not saying we should try to make records like that because we just make different music nowadays. It's so a different cultural experience now. Yeah, um, music is, but sonically listening to those records we have to go man that is great like that is just such good sonics like um, so I don't know I mean, yeah there's tons of records there's so many things that I have in my head from listening to music as a kid growing up like and anybody who's a music lover that's how it is for them
2: so do you have any tips for uh, DIY home recording musicians like quick easy do's and don'ts to, to keep a, a uh, session yeah. productive
3: yeah, I mean first thing is don't get bogged down by trying to have um all the best equipment and spending a bunch of money on stuff if you're especially when you're starting out. Like um you know, don't go and spend ten thousand dollars or five thousand dollars on a bunch of equipment um, when you're just trying to figure out how to do stuff. Like get get something basic going, uh whatever the format that is, if you think you want to do analog tape recording, then you've got to get good at mechanical work. Like you have to get good at fixing the thing because there's not as many tape technicians, really, really none unless you live in Nashville or Los Angeles or New York. People actually know how to work on those machines. So you're going to learn the forums and things, how to keep your machine running. if You're going to get a quick machine. Um, absolutely. I suggest doing it. If you want to do that sound and get analog tape going, but it's, it's going to be more effort on your time, more time spent getting it, that stuff running and making sure it's running and making sure it's aligned and calibrated and all the stuff you have to do. But if you want to just record and be creative, then I suggest get a computer, get a basic audio interfaces. There's so many of them now that sound really good. They all sound really good at really great price points. Get one or two good microphones that that you like, maybe three or four if you can afford them. And, uh, and then a really great pair of speakers. The best, most expensive speakers we're not most expensive, the best sounding speakers you can afford, which models I can't tell you because everyone's ears are different and what appeals to them is different, right?
1: Sure. Yeah. You
3: know, that's like, you know, you tell people like, these speakers are the best and other people like, I can't stand the way those speakers sound. So that that's a very, very subjective um, thing. But get a pair that are trying to be as accurate as possible and make sure that the env- environment in which those speakers are sitting in is somewhat acoustically controlled, you know, spend some time consulting the internet, asking people and figure out what products will best treat a room's acoustics for you to be able to hear what the speakers are telling you and not to be ruining the process for you. Um, you know, those are great. You have to be able to hear the speakers. Yeah. You have to be able to hear the speakers and hear accuracy somewhat. And if you're in a room like a bug room or something, and it has a lot of weird reflections and weird resonances because the room is small, you have to treat that room to some extent. Or it just you just won't know what you're listening to. And I think that's right. the most important thing is learning how to have speakers and learning how to hear them and, and having an environment that they are somewhat accurate in. Okay. It's more Great. important than any of the microphones actually or any of stuff. Wow. Like, because right. right. if you can't hear what the speakers are telling you, how do you know that that thousand dollar microphone or five hundred dollar microphone that you spent on money on sounds good? If right. you can't tell it what it sounds yeah. like, because you're in a room that sounds bad.
2: You have to start at the end. Like.
1: Yeah. Yep. Uh, another another album that you had a hand in was um the actually turned out to be a pair of records. They released a second one, um the Brownout Brown Sabbath records. Can oh, you tell yeah. us that a little bit great. about those? Yeah, we we yeah, t- yeah. when those when the first one came out in 2014, I kind of highlighted it in one of the episodes of the podcast.
3: Yep. Yeah, those kinds are great. Um, yeah, so it was two different records put out by. Um, a Texas group that do they're like kind of a, what they, what they would you consider? They're kind of like a, a funk Spanish jam band in a way, like yeah. a or party band. I would yeah, say yeah. a party band. Yeah. Yeah. They're like a band, like a Latin jamming party, rock and roll funk party band, like a horn section. And I mean, they're great. They're all really great musicians yeah. and very talented individuals. And uh, so I mixed The first record, which was it's all Black Sabbath covers, but their own versions of it, and then they hired me again to mix the second one, Um, and it was great because uh, I'm a fan of Black Sabbath, and it was a lot of fun to work on those records because it was like oh a new approach to it, and lots of like really great percussion going on, and you know it's all really recorded really cool like really good spatial. Recording yeah it, it's
1: Donald, got a, so. it's got a great big sound and uh the yeah. horns and the, the horns and the percussion do really stand out on it
3: yeah well it's because those are really strong points in the music right. and and like when mixing uh latin music um you have to approach it from like what is important in latin music you know latin music is so much of it is important is the rhythmic element um and so the percussion is is highly important in in that music uh understanding what it means and it's cultural viewpoints and just what moves the rhythm just those polyrhythmic things that are going on um so yeah i'm also a big fan of afro cuban music and i studied a little bit at university uh, studied jazz drumming uh so that's kind of one of my backgrounds anyways as a musician um
4: right nice, nice. yeah
2: sounds like it was a good pair then. good pairing
3: yeah, it was great, and then, yeah, and and, I've, and it's funny because I did this other record called Spanish Gold. Is the band? Right. Which is uh, the guitar player from, uh, from um, my my brain goes blank all the time because I have to remember a million things. So you've I got, got the Drowner
2: from My Morning Jacket, correct?
3: Yeah, exactly. My drum from My Morning Jacket, um, and it, who else was on? It was guitar from from that band, Brownout. Um, yeah, Brownout. Um his other yeah, but but it's not Brownout. Out. What is his main band called? It's Cult of the Gulf. It's called or he was in there. I don't know if he's in there anymore, but um that he played guitar, he played some really cool stuff. Dante from the band Hacienda. Okay. Um, Dante Schwebel. He's the one who wrote most of he wrote a lot of the songs at least lyrically I don't know if he wrote all of the song structures too, but he wrote he was very involved in the songwriting so was them. And that, that record turned out really cool. That was a lot of fun to make also.
2: Right on. So, um, you know, just one more question and we'll, we'll have you on your way. Um, so as, uh, streaming music subscriptions, you know, continue to grow and, but so have ironically vinyl sales. Um, what are your hopes for the future of music fidelity and distribution and consumption?
3: Oh man. Well, I hope that people keep paying for music and actually just outright buy records because you know, the streaming services just aren't cutting it right for for artists. They're just, it's not the payouts aren't right enough. And I don't think they in the current models and the current contracts are not, they're not right. And that needs to be fixed. That needs to be uh, negotiated much more fairly. So the artists are actually getting uh, parts of the content, much more of the content payout because you know, currently the models are most of the money goes to the labels that own the rights to the music and then the payout is so small. When you're talking about a million streams being like, uh, you know, $150 or whatever the crazy number it ends up being, that's crazy. You know, yeah. it's like, um, so, you know, that'll get figured out. So hopefully that gets figured out. If not, then maybe people will start to buy music again and pay for it. Um, and you know, that's, you know, in my opinion, I personally not a fan of streaming because of what pays out to the artists because it's just not fair. It's not paying artists properly at all. Right. Um, you know, it's, you know people, are, people used to be able to hedge out a living when they could sell a certain amount of records. But now a lot of artists I know are, like, touring 9 to 12 months out of the year to try to make their living, you know? Right. they're Not right. making any money from selling records or streaming payouts. Like, they're not. Um, the royalties just aren't there the way they yeah. should be. Um, but vinyl is great that people are doing that. Um, doing that more and that's encouraging people to buy vinyl record players and get into this physical format and the artistic relationship of that you know the big covers the art the packaging all that is related to it and how that emotionally impacts people's relationship to music because you know if you grew up with that like I did as a kid like you sat and looked at the covers and imagined what those records were like like what was the reason why did they do that and like you start imagining and coming up with your own scenarios of the band playing and how that got how that happened in the studio at least that's what i how i imagined it when i was a kid how did this all happen like what were they doing you know like how did they get that to sound that way um so those relationships are really important to music and the the imagery that's related and i think the vinyl format is it's just it's you know, it's something you can hold in your hand, I mean, you know, not, not to paraphrase too much of a Jack White says the same kind of stuff. Like it's such a physical thing and it's, you're so connected to this physical thing. Hence why he started up his own record processing company, you know, at third man, because yep. he believes in this as his as as art, not just as uh, a commodity, you know, like it's, it's more valuable than just a commodity, you know? It, it is it's a part of our cultural experience, part of our cultural identity. So anyone who's trying to help move that along and, and help maintain human connection to that, where well, it's not just background noise, music isn't just listened to while while you you know you know do like your chores or something. Like you know, not saying that that is invalid either. But if that's the only thing people do to consume music, if they don't focus on listening to it on purpose. And I mean, all those people making music will stop doing it because we can't live you know yeah truth absolutely so it's very 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 important that that vinyl has been really great at recreating connection with younger crowds to the physical aspect of the art and and actually and it's also putting money in artists pockets because people actually have to buy the the record they can't just go to youtube and stream it (laughs) you know like actually have to buy it i think streaming is great because it helps people find music that they would never find otherwise like you know, old jazz records and old jazz recordings that are rare. that aren't on press who aren't being printed. You can't get them in iTunes. That's great. But when it's a brand new record by an artist and it's being streamed and put up by people who are just fans of the music, but YouTube is making money off of advertising from it, right. Google is then, and they're not paying the artist because there's, because Google didn't authorize the upload, but they're still put slapping advertisements on it. That has to change. Yeah. Like, and you can't tell me the biggest tech company in the world can't control their own, their own networks when they say that we can't control it. We don't know how to do this. Like, Come on, guys. You <laughs> guys have artificial intelligence. The biggest artificial intelligence computers in the world. Right? You right. guys can't control yep. content upload? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Come on. Well, I don't believe it.
2: Hopefully so. they'll get it figured out sooner rather than later because Absolutely. Um, yeah much the, sooner yeah the uh, the experience has become diluted a bit i think for most of a generation of music yeah, consumers exactly. now exactly. yeah yeah so yeah, but exactly. but um, uh, people like yourself uh, obviously with the work that you do are enriching uh the industry and um we are certainly fortuitous for that. Um, and so Colin, yeah, we just want to thank, thank you, you again for your time and, and we look forward to your future yeah, thank projects. Thank you.
3: Thank you, for, thank, you. And thank you for letting me uh, get on your show and rant a little bit about music and art and uh, a little bit of the p- politics involved in it. Um, you know, let me express my opinion because I, you know, in the big scheme of things that, you know, we're all here to try to do something that we love doing and, you know, music and art is like, you know it's why you do why you would get into a crazy business like the music business unless you don't love it like you know and it's not for you because it's very hard to do
0: i'd like to thank again colin dupuy for taking the time to chat with us you can review a list of colin's work at his website that's colin com. that's colin with two l's dot scom we also will link to colin's website from our site RockChew.com. Want to remind everybody, you can find all of our episodes there at RockChew.com. Every single one that we've ever recorded, all eighty-seven of them 87. now. Eighty-seven. Good going. We we made it, kid. Um, all right. So, want to remind everybody as well that you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at chew. That's Rock as in there's. No way that Sammy Sosa's coming back to the Cubs anytime soon <laughs> um so <Ouch>. sorry, <laughs> yeah, right, um, but anyway, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at rock in Also, you can like us on Facebook and also please leave us a review on iTunes or comment on the YouTube videos. That would help us out a lot. Um, You can also find us on your favorite podcasting apps as well. So however you listen to us, uh, just give us a shout out. We'd appreciate it. Until next time, we'll see you soon.
1: Peace.